Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, on today's Beeson Podcast, we get to hear again another sermon, and this one by a preacher who has also been a pastor for much of his life, an educator. He's taught at a number of colleges and seminaries, Dr. James C. Dennison. It was preached at the E.K. Bailey Preaching Conference in Dallas, Texas some years ago. In 2009, Dr. Dennison founded the Dennison Forum on Truth and Culture. He speaks and he writes out of his deep knowledge of God's Word into the culture in which we live today, always bringing a transcendent perspective to it. But in this sermon, Dr. Smith, he's speaking at an even deeper level because he's really uh, unraveling his soul right before us in the pulpit. It's a remarkable, disclosive sermon. Tell us about it. Dean George, uh, this is a remarkably disclosive sermon. It's not a sermon that provides a verse-by-verse treatment of Luke 24, 13-36, the uh, road of Emmaus, uh, but he takes as a weaver a strand of the text, a fragment perhaps, and weaves it with application for the preacher today and then gives his own personal confession so it becomes his personal witness. All three strands tied together simultaneously. Uh, he's preaching to uh, the ministers at the E.K. Bailey Conference, and his purpose really is to, to say that what God did 2,000 years ago on the road that led from Jerusalem to Emmaus, he's able to do today. And he's treating this matter of the danger of the minister losing the minister's soul. Uh, I think that um, for him to uh, take this text and weave it and to apply application throughout is a very strong way in, in which this message could be preached at the conference. Three things in terms of uh, his application, uh, he is going to bring out from the text that these two men know about Jesus without necessarily knowing Jesus, that these two men talk about Jesus rather than talk to Jesus, and that these two men are doing things for Jesus when Jesus wants them to be something for him. And so each one of these uh, areas he applies to where the minister is today. So this is a call to spiritual authenticity. It is. And in a way, it's a kind of piece of self-reflection that ought to speak to every minister of the gospel who is charged not only to speak God's word, but to let God's word speak to to him in the pulpit. Is that right? It's exactly right, Dean George. And I think he does this uh, in a very uh, clear way in that he gives us doctrine, really, through through story, through narratives, his own personal narrative, Christologically speaking. I mean, he says, if my boys thought that I loved them for their performance, uh, it would it would crush me to bring out the fact that Christ loves us uh, because of who he has made us to be rather than what we do for him, that our works ought to be a result of what he has made us to be, that the imperative always follows the indicative rather than indicative uh, coming after imperative. This is Dr. James C. Dennison preaching at the E.K. Bailey Preaching Conference in Dallas, Texas. Let's listen. I'm going to preach something today I hadn't planned to preach this morning. I know I need to hear it, and I have to assume someone else does too. So I want you to open your Bible with me, please, to Luke chapter 24. 
Now, it wasn't the text earlier today, but that's the text. Luke chapter 24, that very familiar experience as the two disciples are on their way to Emmaus. I want to say to you that I believe what God did there, God's ready to do here. What God did in their hearts, God wants to do in our hearts. What Jesus did with those two men on that road that day, Jesus now wants to do with you and me here today. And if you and I can have the same experience they had, then you and I can preach as they preached. And God can use us as God used them. I want to take you there. I want to show you what's changed from Emmaus to today, and then I want to show you what doesn't change. You and I are living in an ecotonic day. It's anamorphic, as E.K. said last night. That's a word I didn't know. I'm impressed, you know, anamorphic. Is that a real word? Did anybody look it up? Did anybody? I don't see a single hand, E.K. I don't know, man. I think we love you. We just don't trust you, you know? And I'm not sure I have to look that anamorphic up. I sure will. He said he looked up dysfunctional. I'm going to look up anamorphic, see if that's really in the dictionary. Ecotonic's another word. You can go look it up. It's really there, believe it or not. And ecotone is a place where two different geological systems collide. All right? For instance, San Francisco Bay's an ecotone. As the freshwater of the San Joaquin and Sacramento rivers collide with the saltwater of the Pacific Ocean. A swamp is an ecotone where the land and the sea come together. Hydrothermal vent at the floor of the ocean is an ecotone as the heat and the gas of the earth collides with the depth of the ocean, all right? You and I are in ecotonic days. And ecotone is where we are right now. We are in between two worlds that are colliding right now. Nothing's changed like it's changing right now. Social scientists say 90% of all the change in human history has occurred in the last 100 years. 90% of that has occurred in the last 10 years. We're in an ecotonic day right now. Everything's changing, isn't it? Do you know there's a new website every two seconds? A new product every 30 minutes? The world's store of information doubles every 18 months? Every 18 months. There's a thing called disk on key. I saw it on a website two weeks ago. Four inches long, you put it on your keychain. You plug it into the USB port of your computer and download anything to it you want to. You unplug it, you take it to another computer on the other side of the world. You plug it in, you pull that up and do with it what you want. Disc on key, 40 bucks. Who would have dreamed? By the year 2020, you'll be able to buy a computer with the computing power of the human brain for $1,000. Ecotonic days. Everything's changing in the culture. Ecotonic days for the church. When America was founded, we were in what Alvin Toffler calls the first wave. Agricultural America. Farms, rural towns everywhere. Middle of the 19th century, we moved into the Industrial Revolution. Second wave. People moving into the major cities, working for the large corporations. 1960s, we moved into the third wave. Informational, technological revolution. Church did good in the first day. The first wave. Little churches spanning all across the rural horizon. Church did good. Second wave. Church did good as we built mega churches and metropolises. How's the church doing in the third wave? One way to get at it is to look at Southern Baptist Sunday School averages. 
Not membership, but who comes to church. Not who says they go to church, but who goes to church. In the 30s, Southern Baptist Sunday School grew by 27%. In the 40s, Southern Baptist Sunday School grew by 31%. In the 50s, Southern Baptist Sunday School grew by 57%. In the 60s, Southern Baptist Sunday School grew by 2%. 70s minus 1, 80s minus 8. And the decade of the 80s in the city of Dallas, with all the mega church growth of all the Southern Baptist churches in this city, the total Sunday school attendance in the city of Dallas in the decade of 80s grew by 40. Barna surveys indicate that only 19% of unchurched Americans even know what a Christian is, can even define what it is to be a believer. 91% say the church is irrelevant to their needs. 93% say the church is insensitive to their concerns. We're in an ecotonic day. And so it's appropriate that you and I talk about how to do strategies and methods that accomplish what God wants done in this ecotonic day. It's appropriate that we look at different ways to reach people. But... While things are changing about strategy and things are changing about methodology and things are changing about the ways by which we get the gospel to people, let me talk to you about something that cannot change, something that must not change. And this is what I didn't know I was going to say to you until 12.15 today. i got to tell you a story. In 1997, I was the pastor of Second Ponce de Leon Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Monday and Tuesday of Easter week, our staff went on a two-day silent retreat. Went to a place called Ignatius House, a Jesuit Catholic retreat center on the Chattahoochee River just north of Atlanta. Two days of silence. I went to see if my staff could be quiet for two days. They went to see if I could be quiet for two days. We had a retreat director who gave us a series of essays to read, various points across the retreat. The first essay he gave us to read, written by a fellow named Mike Iaconelli, a Christian writer and a good columnist, I want to read to you how that essay begins. 1997, Monday before Easter, when I read this. I lost my soul. I mean, I didn't know I had one. What I really mean is, I knew I had one, but I'd never come in contact with it. I came from a tradition where souls were a theological reality, not a faith reality. Souls were for saving, not for communing. Souls were for converting, and once they were converted, they were to be left alone. Souls were too mystical, too subjective, too ambiguous, too risky, too new age-ish. He says, I came from a wonderful evangelical tradition that has always lifted up the integrity of the Word of God, the significance of the church, the centrality of salvation. But that same tradition in the past few years has seen an epidemic of moral failure. In a tradition that has always placed a high value on morality, moral failure has become a common occurrence. There seems to be an ever-increasing amount of defections from the faith. More and more of my friends are dropping out, giving up, or just placing their faith on the shelf for a while. Why? We have lost touch with our souls. We have been nourishing our minds, our relational skills, our theological knowledge, our psychological well-being, our physiological health, but we have abandoned our souls. Our souls have been lost. Up until a few months ago, he says, I had no idea I had lost my soul somewhere. 
In the busyness and clutter of my life as I traveled all over the world serving God, I thought my soul was just fine, thank you. But my soul wasn't fine. I spent hours every day doing God's work, but not one second doing soul work. I was consumed by the external and oblivious to the internal. In the darkness of my soul, I was stumbling around and bumping into the symptoms of my soullessness. I was busy, superficial, friendless, afraid, and cynical, but I didn't know where all these negative parts of my life were coming from. What happened to him? Happened to me. And that's the story I've got to tell you today that I hadn't planned to tell you. Let's look at the text first. Let's get a context for what God's saying to us. You know this story in Luke chapter 24. You know what's going on here. It's Easter Sunday. Verse 13 says that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. Emmaus is seven, seven and a half miles to the west of Jerusalem. It's a little town known primarily for some hot springs in the area and really very little else. These two men have been in some sense followers of Jesus. It's that Easter Sunday they're going west into the sunset of the day and of their souls. You see, these two men know a great deal about Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19. They know that he's a prophet, powerful in word and deed. Verse 20, they know that he's been crucified. Verse 21, they had hoped he would redeem Israel to be the Messiah. Verse 23, they've heard that he is alive. They know he's a prophet, crucified, Messiah, resurrected, a more compact Christology you cannot find in the Bible. They know a great deal about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. For reasons we don't fully understand, back in verse 16 it says, that as they're walking along and Jesus Christ himself appears with them and walks with them, verse 16 says, they were kept from recognizing him. So here they are talking about Jesus to Jesus. And they don't know it's him. How many times have we talked about Jesus in his presence and not known he was there? How many times have we preached sermons about God when God wanted to preach sermons about himself? They know God in their heads. They've lost him in their souls. They are 18 inches from God. Here's how the essay continues. For months I'd known something was wrong with me. I was filled with longings I could not identify, yearnings I could not express, and an emptiness that seemed to be expanding. I was desperate even though I could not articulate my desperation. I decided to spend a week at La Arche, a community for the mentally and physically challenged in Toronto. I don't know why really, I just knew I needed to do something. To be honest, I expected to be inspired by Henry Nouwen and touched by the mentally and physically disabled people who lived there. Now listen to this. Within a few days, I became aware that my whole life was consumed with doing rather than being. 
I knew what it meant to believe in Jesus. I did not know what it meant to be with Jesus. I knew how to talk about Jesus. I did not know how to sit still long enough to let Jesus talk to me. I found it easy to do the work of God, but I had no idea how to let God work in me. I understood soul saving, but I was clueless about soul making. I knew how to be busy, but I did not know how to be still. I could talk about God, I just couldn't listen to God. I felt comfortable with God's people, but I was uncomfortable alone with God. I was acquainted with the God out there, but I was a complete stranger to the God in here. I could meet God anywhere except in my heart, in my soul, in my being. Here's how it happened to me. Monday of Easter week at that silent retreat, I wanted to be any place but there. You know how it is on Monday of Easter week. You've got work to do. You've got the Super Bowl ahead of you. You've got the biggest sermon of the year to prepare. Who's got two days of Easter week to go do nothing? That's how I saw it. So I cheated. I smuggled in my laptop and some commentaries. I got to my room, I read the essay, I set it to the side, and I got started on my Easter sermon. That particular year, Time Magazine had a cover story with a picture of the world and the caption, Is God Real? And so I made that the introduction to my Easter sermon, and I worked on it all afternoon. And around 4 o'clock or so, I got the outline in a place I was comfortable with, so I took a break. Left the room where we were staying and walked down to the decks that are built out over the Chattahoochee River there in that part of Atlanta. Sat there and watched the river go by for a little while. Watched some kids playing soccer in a field across the river. Watched some folks in some rafts as they floated down. Then I took a little bit of a hike from those decks down along a nature trail they have on this property that comes alongside a creek that leads up to a waterfall. It's just gorgeous. The Jesuits have their houses looking out over that waterfall. And there's a kind of a gondola, kind of a wooden deck that's built out over that waterfall. So you're only from here to that piano from the waterfall there. And you're listening to the water as it comes down. And it's just a spectacular place. And I sat down there on that deck looking at that waterfall on Monday before Easter in 1997. And God spoke to me. I want you to know I use those words very carefully. And very seldom. But I will tell you that God spoke to me. God spoke to my heart. God spoke to my soul. God reminded me of that essay I had read, and he showed me that what happened to him had happened to me. He made me realize that my soul, my spiritual life, is just as real as the trees around me and the blue sky above me and the birds I could hear singing. Couldn't see it, but that made it no less real. I thought about the radio and TV waves. I couldn't see, but I knew they were real. I thought about the airplanes I couldn't see, but I knew they were real. And the satellites overhead I knew were real. And the Hale-Bopp comet was up in the skies in those days, and I couldn't see it, but I knew it was real. And God made me realize my spiritual life, my soul is real and malnourished. And I want you to understand, there was no heinous sin in my life in those days. There was no habitual issue in my life between God, of which I'm aware I was studying the scripture every morning. I had my prayer list and my journal that I kept every day. And I felt that I was with God, walking with God, working with God. 
But in that day, sitting on that deck, looking at that waterfall, I realized I could not remember the last time I spent an hour listening to God. I could not remember the last time I studied God's Word for no other reason except I wanted to hear from God. Not to do my Bible study for the morning, not to prepare the sermon for Sunday, not to get the study ready to publish, but simply because I wanted God to speak to me and for no other reason than that. I could not remember the last time I spent a day walking with God. I couldn't remember the last time I preached a sermon for no other reason but that God had put a message on my heart. I was preaching because it was Sunday. God, save us from people who preach only because it's Sunday. I could not remember the last time I visited somebody in the hospital for no other reason but compassion. Not because it was my job to be there, but because God called me to be there and for no other reason. I couldn't remember the last time I shared my faith with a lost person simply because I loved them. And not because I was the pastor and it was my duty. I could not remember the last time from my soul I told God I loved Him. I had lost touch with my soul. But when you lose a ball in the weeds, you go find it. When you lose your soul in the weeds, God comes to find you. God finds you. Here's how we did it back then. <laughs> After these two disciples had finished telling Jesus about Jesus. After they finished telling God about God. Don't you know God likes it when we tell God about God? When we get out there ahead of God and expect Him to follow. When we get out there and work for God and expect God to bless what we do. So they finished telling Jesus all about Jesus. And Jesus says, How foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter into His glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them what was said in the Scriptures concerning Himself. Wouldn't you love to have heard that? You can. What Jesus said to them, Jesus will say to us. If we'll listen... What Jesus did for them, Jesus will do for us if we'll ask Him. You think these are the only two people Jesus wants to walk beside? The only two disciples He wants to talk to? The only two preachers He wants to preach to? But we're too busy. We're too busy. I was so busy working for Jesus, I forgot what it was like to walk with Jesus. So they're walking with Jesus. They approach the village. They urge him, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day is almost over. When's the last time you urged Jesus to stay with you? 
through the evening. He's at the table, he takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, he begins to give it to them. Their eyes are open, they recognize him, he disappears from their sight. They ask each other, we're not our hearts, we're not our souls burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. If your soul's out of touch with God, God will come find you. Here's what happened for Mike. It only took a few hours of silence before I began to hear my soul speaking. It only took being alone for a short period of time for me to discover that I wasn't alone. God had been trying to shout over the noisiness of my life and I couldn't hear him. But in the stillness and solitude, his whisper shouted from my soul, Michael, I am here. I have been calling you. I have been loving you. But you haven't been listening. Can you hear me, Michael? I love you. I have always loved you. I've been waiting for you to hear me say that to you. But you have been so busy trying to prove to yourself that you are loved that you have not heard me. Hear that sentence again. You have been so busy trying to prove to yourself that you are loved that you have not heard me. I heard him, he says. And my slumbering soul was filled with the joy of the prodigal son. My soul was awakened by a loving father who had been looking and waiting for me. As I sat on that deck that day looking at that waterfall, my attention was drawn to Psalm 139.17 in a translation I had not considered before. It says, How precious concerning me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is their number! If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand of the seashore. To think about the fact that God thinks about me more often than the number of grains of sand. That God thinks about you more often than the number of grains of sand. Sitting on that deck, I realized to my shame and my grief that I had been grieving my father. I had been working to earn God's love when all God wanted to do was give me his love. I had been preaching so that God would accept me when God had already accepted me. I had been preaching God's grace so that I could earn God's grace. It doesn't work that way. Our two boys are 15 and nearly 13. My 15-year-old's as tall as I am. Beats me at basketball the other day. He was blocking my jump shot. I said, Ryan, you're blocking my jump shot. He said, Dad, you got to jump for it to be a jump shot. <laughs> Fortunately, they're still afraid of their mother. Just like I am. If my boys ever thought that my love for them depended on the points they made in a basketball game or the score they made in some school test, my heart would be cut to the quick. If my boys ever thought that my love for them was the result of their love for me, or what they did for me, my heart would be broken. And I realized sitting on that deck I had broken the heart of God. The next day I was reading Henry Nouwen's book, Out of Solitude, and he drew me to Mark 1.35, which says, Jesus got up a great while before day, went out to a solitary place and prayed. I realized if Jesus Christ needed time alone with the Father, how much more does my soul need time alone with the Father? 
It didn't say he went there to get a sermon. It didn't say he went there to meet with the staff. It didn't say he went there to do his job. It said he went there to be with his father. If Jesus needs to be with his father for no other reason than to be with his father, you need to be with your father. So do I. Still later, I was drawn to John chapter 5, where Jesus said, By myself, I can do nothing. I want you to know if Jesus by himself can do nothing, you and I by ourselves can do nothing. We can't save a soul. We can't convict of a sin. We can't heal a marriage. We can't restore a home. You and I by ourselves can do nothing. It's only when the Holy Spirit of God works with and through us that God does His work. And here I was working for God. As Tony said today, I was building a church. I wasn't building the kingdom. There's a difference. In those two days, I realized that spirituality is not part of my life. It is my life. Walking with God is not a resource for our ministries. It is the center of our lives. God does not want us to work for Him. The sovereign God of the universe does not need us to work for Him. The God who made the universe doesn't need us to work for Him. As the scientists now understand it, it takes like four and a half billion years to cross the universe we already can see through our telescopes. Four and a half billion years. But the book of Isaiah says that God measures that in the palm of His hand. Now what's your problem? And that God needs me to work for Him? No. That God wants me to walk with Him. And as we walk with Him, He works through us to do what we could never do for Him. Look what these disciples did. Verse 33 says, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Now, don't pass that by. They didn't get a cab. They didn't go hop in the car. They ran seven and a half miles after dark on a road so dangerous, I've traveled it in day and feared for my safety. They had a message. They didn't have a ministry, they had a message. Our world isn't looking for a ministry, but it sure is looking for a message. Our world's not looking for sermons to listen to, they're looking for a message. They had a message. And so they ran to Jerusalem. 
They found the eleven, those with them, assembled together, saying, It's true, the Lord has risen, has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And now, this is the best part. While they were still talking about this, <laughs> while they were still talking about this, while these two men are still telling what Jesus has done in their souls and in their hearts and in their lives, while they are still preaching the message God has put on their hearts as He has changed their souls, while they are still talking about this, Jesus Himself stood among them. If you want Jesus to show up on Sunday... If you want Jesus to show up on Sunday, He better be in your soul today. You better be walking with Him today if you want Him to show up when you work for Him on Sunday. And He'll do it. Do you think Jesus wants to show up in your church on Sunday? You bet He does but he wants to show up in your heart first. <laughs> when Jesus spoke to my soul, I had to tell the world. On Tuesday, we got to talk after this silent retreat. I couldn't wait to tell the staff. The next Sunday was Easter Sunday. Just like today, my sermon went away. And on that Easter Sunday, I had to tell my church how I had lost touch with my soul. And God helped me find it again. I want you to know that spiritual renewal began that day. And across the years that God gave us in that church and in that community, God did things I have never seen God do. We had a man come in off the street on a Sunday morning off of his motorcycle, a cocaine addict with a broken arm, who was saved and healed. We had a couple who would filing for divorce on Monday come to Sunday school on Sunday and God healed their marriage. I don't want to offend you, but I'm just telling you what happened. We had an alcoholic, cocaine-abusing lesbian come to our church on Sunday. To this day, Rita tells me she has no idea why she showed up there. She didn't know a soul. She had no idea. She came. God touched her heart and soul. And the next week, she brought her former lesbian lover to introduce her to me. They don't tell you at seminary how to handle that. And the next week, I looked up in the balcony, and there was Rita with ten people I'd never seen before who looked very uncomfortable. They were her AA group. She brought them to church. Jesus showed up. Jesus showed up. 
And as E.K. said, Jesus showed up and he showed off. A ministry began called Atlanta Community Ministries. Empowering people to take the gospel through their own relationships and their own passions, their own interests, out into the community. It started with that Easter. In one year, that ministry shared the gospel with 54,000 people. Jesus showed up. And it's all because we found our souls. Now you understand, this kind of behavior is not stereotypical of white Southern Baptist churches. You understand that. To you, this is worth celebrating. To us, it was shocking. I started preaching sermons I didn't know to preach. I heard myself saying things I didn't know to say. You're used to that. I wasn't. Knew about a guy that was visiting in the hospital, visiting a lady who was sick, couldn't move her legs, paralyzed. He said, what do you want me to do? She said, I want you to pray for me to be well. He prayed for her, asked God to heal her. Her legs began to move. She got out of the bed. She jumped up, cheering, praising God. The doctors came running. They couldn't believe it. The preacher left the room, went to his car and said, God, don't you ever do that to me again. That's kind of where we were. But Jesus showed up. The day we stopped working for God and started walking with God, Jesus showed up. So I've come here to tell you something. Before God wants your lips, or your mind, or your hands, or your feet, or your pulpit, or your church, He wants your soul. Before God wants you and me to do a single thing for Him, He wants to work through us. So now I have to ask you, when's the last time you spent an hour listening to God? When is the last time you spent a day walking with God? When is the last time you preached the Word of God for no other reason but that you had a message? Not a ministry, but a message. When's the last time Jesus showed up? He's ready to. At Park Cities, in Concord, in every place, He's welcome. Some years ago, a friend gave me a confession of faith I'm going to close with today. You've heard it, you've seen it perhaps. It was written by an African brother who was later martyred for his commitment to Christ. I have made it my own commitment to Christ. I invite you to make it yours. Our brother said, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. 
I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've crossed the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, shut up, slow up, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense and my future is secure. I am finished and done, he said. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, popularity, promotions, plaudits, or praise. I don't have to be right, first, tops, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by His presence, lean by faith, love by patience, labor with power. That man said, my face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My way is sure. My companions few. My guide reliable. My mission clear. He said, I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of suffering. I will not hesitate in the presence of adversity. I will not give up, shut up, get up, or slow up until I've preached up, prayed up, paid up, stayed up, and stored up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of His. I must go till He comes. Give till I drop. Preach till all know. And work till He stops. And when He comes for His own, He'll have no trouble recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Before God wants your mind, before He wants your lips, before He wants your hands, before He wants your feet, before He wants your pulpit, before He wants your church, before He wants your ministry, He wants your soul. Jesus will show up if He has your soul. How's your soul? You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.